Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. My name is Joel Kletke, and I am the president and co-founder of Case Study Buddy. We are a specialized, I guess, agency at this point that works with mid-sized enterprise B2B companies and helps them capture, share, and cash in on their customer success stories. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Joel. Um, to, to dive right in, you have a background that I think a lot of listeners can relate to being uh, first kind of a freelancer doing consultant and now running a really, you know, a really like impressive and successful um, company with case study buddy. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what that's sort of transition from going from like a freelancer or solopreneur to now running a very specialized agency was like? Yeah. I mean, case study buddy started as a profitable side project. Um, you know, it, it came out of my own consulting work. I was asked from uh, someone who sat on the board of a company that I was doing work for in WP engine, if I did case studies, uh, because they had a, you know, a small company that they advised who was looking for that kind of work and, I thought, well, I do now, you know, the, the person was influential enough where it's like, sure, I'll, I'll give that a shot. And it was through doing that, you know, the idea was, was the seed was planted and, and and I continued chasing that down the path. Um, for me, though, case study was also kind of an experiment in trying to build something bigger than myself. Um, I, I looked at it intentionally as a learning opportunity and a chance to sharpen some skills that I felt I couldn't really home, uh, working as an individual, you know, I wanted to get better at building a team. I wanted to better understand the challenges and nuances of running a, a multi-person company. I wanted to, um, you know, learn and, and go through the, the, uh, frustrations and victories of building processes and teaching them to other people. And, um, you know, see, see what it was like to try to work yourself out of the day-to-day production. Um, so it was both, you know, a, a project of convenience. Um, I love the idea. I, I saw a ton of opportunity, but also this kind of learning experiment for me. Um, a huge part of the challenge when you move out of being the person bringing in the clients, doing the work, you essentially are the business, uh, is that need to very quickly in short order come to terms with the fact that long-term you cannot be the one doing the production work. It can be hard to let go of the production work. It can be hard to give someone else um, you know, the reins to do that job and to take your claws out when it comes to things like the edits or uh, those parts of the process it can be difficult um, to work yourself out of, you know, the, the sales process and handling inbound leads and selling to them and selling on the basis of, you know, initially your, your reputation or your ability, uh, lots of lessons to be learned in that. It's, it's also a huge amount of learning to learn how to vet and hire people and then empower those people and, and work with those people. And I think the bottom line is if you are truly passionate and excited about doing the production work itself, like if you just love, love, love writing case studies or filming testimonials, uh, starting a company around that is probably a terrible idea because you have to, you have to love more than the production work itself. That's a great starting point. But if you're doing your job right in very short order, you're not going to be involved in at least for a you know good long season. You won't be involved in that production piece at all. Uh, and, and that can be very, very hard for especially freelancers to 
come to terms with they want to build teams but then they can't take their claws out of the actual production and then they realize oh i actually don't love being a business owner i like being a creator and and those are two very different jobs that is such a really key point that i think is really easy for so many people to kind of miss i have like so many follow-up questions based on what you just shared there the kind of the first one is what were and i suspect you're i know some of the answer to this but what was some of the biggest mindset shifts that you had to make to go from, you know, creative freelancer consultant to, hey, now I am the founder and CEO of a growing agency. Yeah, I mean, those questions also change as the company grows and matures. But in the early days, you know, the big mindset shifts are, you know, everything's your fault. <laughs> I'll explain in a second. And your way is not the only way. Um, it's an interesting middle ground to be in because, you are directly responsible for the people you hire, the processes you put in place, the guidance you give people, um, the clarity you bring to the deliverables created. You own all of that. And so it's really easy in the early days to, when something goes wrong, point your finger at the people you've brought on. Oh, if only they would do it like I would, if only they would follow instructions, if only they would, if only they would. Well, you, you very quickly have to realize when something has gone wrong, the first place to check in has to be with yourself. Did I make that clear? Did I set them up for success? Did I make it obvious? Did I provide them the training and support to know how to do what it is that I'm asking them to do? And so I think that's one of the big mindset shifts is, you know, you, you have to take radical ownership over what would be easy to blame other people for. You have to check in with yourself first. Is he, have I built an environment where it's possible for people to succeed and have I set them up to do so? Um, expectations not communicated will rarely be met. If you, if you don't make something clear, you can't get upset for someone, you know, with someone for them not following that path. I think, you know, the, the other mindset shift that your way is not the only way you have your own, whether you realize it or not, your own internal standards, your own internal way of coming at a problem, your own internal way of thinking through things. And there are parts of that that are critical to the deliverable. Make no mistake. Um, you know, when we tell a story, there have to be certain components present. There has to be a certain standard of, of you know, writing in terms of grammar and coherency and, and all of that. But, you know, just because I come at storytelling in a particular way, or I word things a particular way, or I create an outline a particular way, you know, figuring out what has to be absolutely followed to the letter and where someone can deviate and still get a great end product, that's super critical. Um, you have to realize that other people can get a similar result to your own or get a similar quality to your own. Uh, without going through the verbatim exact thinking and process that you would. I think one of, for creatives, especially one of the most important things you can do is send clients unedited deliverables at some point, you know, you, you have to work with your you know, creators in our case, writers, you know, working with our writers closely in the early days, but there has to be a gradual process where eventually you don't even look at the doc and you let the feedback come in and you let you know, yourself and your, your team learn from that. Um, and I think that's a kind of a final mindset shift is like, I think for a lot of people, I can be a perfectionist. I can look at any mistake as just this very personal issue and, Oh, how, how did we miss that? 
uh, failure is not the end of the world. Mistakes are not the end of the world. You know, clients are not going to destroy you for minor issues and trying to prevent any possible issue from creeping into anything is a great recipe for over-engineering your entire process and micromanaging your people. You have to let people try and fail and learn from that and realize that it's not going to be the end of the world. Clients are not going to cut you loose because you know something small went wrong. Uh, similarly, though, again, that radical ownership, if something big goes wrong, you have to be ready to step up and own your piece in it and, and take accountability for that too. So it, it is a hard spot to be in. And I think that's why some people burn out on it or don't get far with it is they're just not willing to give up that control. They're not willing to you know, let people fall on their face. They're not willing to let people learn from their own mistakes. They spend so much time trying to prevent anything from ever going wrong that it works against them. Yeah, that is such an important point. Um, and something that I think myself and so many other creatives can relate to as well, given, you know, there is a certain element of control and maybe not even necessarily perfectionism, but things of like wanting to make sure things are done, you know, in a way that is up to a high quality standard. Um, I feel like one of, um, I'd be here to hear your thoughts on this, but I feel like one of the biggest like aha moments, just speaking to myself personally, was the first time you hire someone and they do a better job than you would have done. Um, did you, can, I don't know, like, can you, is that something that you can relate to or did that ever happen to you? Oh, for sure. I mean, long-term, if you're not hiring people who are better at facets of what you do than you are, I think you're moving in the wrong direction. A lot of insecurity can creep in. You keep hiring junior people or whatever, and you're your own worst enemy. You know, you gotta, you gotta look for people who can do better than you can. I think, you know, the first real moment for me came from things adjacent to in my case, the writing, um, when I could hear Sophie on our team, you know, run an interview and listen back and go, that was so clever. The, the way she structured that, the way she let the person tell their story, the experience she brought to bear that that's incredible. Um, when we hired our first ops person in, in Morgan, um, you know, to see how, on top of things Morgan could be, how she could handle uh, client situations, how she could align, you know, the different, at that point, the different parts of our team and, and own that process and control that and, and do things that, you know, that were just different from how I would do them, or, or maybe I wouldn't have thought of it. Um, you know, it's a huge moment. And I think it's a critical moment. You know, today, uh, a key part of when we think through hiring and it's a message we send, like we, we hire people to do things. We don't want to have to think about, obsess about agonize over. We, we want them to not be in agony, but we want them to be obsessed about doing their piece. And we want them to bring experience deeper than, than what we've got. I think if you never graduate past that, if, if you can't come to grips with, you know, the arrogance, I think a lot of us carry into this. Oh yeah, my way is the right way. And I know, I know best, you you know, it is a huge aha moment to see other people just thriving. And there's almost nothing more rewarding than to make a great hire and see them thrive. And that's uh, it's a feeling that doesn't get old. Absolutely. Can you maybe speak a little bit to your current team structure at K3 Buddy today? Yeah, we're in an interesting spot. I mean, we've we've gone through a a ton of transition. Um, You know, we, in the early days, it was all contractor-based and and project-based. You know, we, we were small and we were kind of small on purpose. We were, you know, avoiding taking on a whole lot of overhead. We were kind of proving out the concept. 
Um, you know, the advantage with contractors, especially project by project contractors is, Hey, if there's no project to do, there's no cost inherent. It's not like staff. Um, but there are massive limitations to that as well. Um, you know, there is a, a huge limitation to the amount of time and focus and dedication you get from someone who, you know, if, if you're just one more vendor, if you're just one more team, they work with just one more project. There's a lot you can do to foster loyalty, to make them feel like part of a team. There are companies that are successfully, you know, to this day, built entirely of contractors. I look at, you know, Optimist and what Tyler Hakes has done there. But for us, there came a point where to service the client base that we wanted to service. I mean, we're increasingly targeting mid-sized enterprise, especially companies. For the level of service we wanted to provide, we wanted to be able to have them get on a call on short notice. We wanted to be able to provide super predictable turnarounds. We wanted to be able to be able to forecast, you know, availability. We wanted to be able to keep the same writers and interviewers and so on on every project. We we needed that stability desperately for roles like project management and account management. And so in time, you know, there are roles that are still a great fit for, for contractors. Some of our writers are still contracts, some of our interviewers still contract, but there are others that you just need that permanency. You you need that availability. And so today, uh, you know, we're, we're at around nine staff strong, uh, full-time based in Canada. And then we have a cloud of contractors with varying relationships, be it retainer, be it project to project, you know, 13 to 15 or so of those. Um, and we're increasingly prioritizing staff. Uh, now that we've reached this kind of critical mass, now that we've grown to this point. It's not that we don't love our contractors. It's not that we don't love the ability to tap into that international market, you know, of, of really great people. We still intend to do that where it makes sense, but for where we're at and for where we're going, we're just realizing so much more opportunity and benefit from bringing people on um, and so much more opportunity again for us to make them feel part of something and celebrate together and, act as part of a team. So that's, you know, we, we've got kind of this hybrid model and I, I see that carrying forward into the future too. Yeah. That's so fascinating. And you've done something that I think a lot of agencies really struggle with, which is be able to hire someone originally as a contractor and then over time, build up enough of a relationship and build up enough of a rapport to convince them to go full-time in-house as an employee. Can you maybe speak to how you've been able to do that so successfully? Yeah, it's, you know, again, it's a super rewarding part of the business. I think, you know, there's so much hype around being your own boss right now and running your own business. And, you know, a lot of people will tell you, oh, you can make so much more as a freelancer. You can make so much more as a consultant. And I mean, I did that, right? I, I think that is true in a lot of cases, but there's also something to be said for, again, security and being part of a team and, um, having, you know, a stake in things and skin in the game. And so for us, you know, when we've had people who started out as contractors, we really do try to operate off of our values. And part of our values is making sure everyone feels like they have a voice. Everyone feels seen. Everyone feels celebrated. Um, part of the reason we're structured the way that we are with the roles that we have is we want people to be able to operate 
in, you know, their zone of excellence. We want writers to be able to write. We don't want them chasing clients. We don't want them, you know, getting pulled into conversations they'd rather not be pulled into. Um, you know, we we don't want them to have to take on tasks that are ill-suited to their skill set. We want them to be just badass writers. We we want them to be where they're comfortable and excited and they can thrive. And so there are some relationships where, yeah, you're never going to make the transition from contractor to staff because they have other things that they're really passionate about and they, they love running their own business and they, they love, you know, the diversity of different things they get to do. And that's just fine. Nothing wrong with that. But for those who, you know, have come on as staff, I think a big part of it is letting them focus on the things they truly love treating them as obviously fairly and and positively as we can with things like compensation. We want to make it worth their while. We want it to be their best option. Um, And then creating a team that they love to be part of, you know, a place that they want to stay, a place that they feel heard, they feel respected, they feel they have a voice, they like the direction we're going in. Um, You know, and and that's something we did even when it was all contractors is we would do all hands meetings and talk about Hey, here's where we're at. Here's where we're going. Here's how things are performing. Here's what's coming up. Here's where we're struggling. Uh, here, here are these changes that that are coming down, you know, coming down the pike. Um, and so that's that's what it's looked like for us is just constant communication, operating from our values, letting people do the things they really love and want to be able to focus on, um, and, and trying to build a place that people want to stay and never trying to force it. Uh, we we've never we've never cut someone loose because they don't want to be staff. Um, you know, we we've never gone, oh, well, you run your own thing, so that's bad for us. We love people. I mean, you know, Sophie on our team is a contractor. We love the other experience she picks up serving other people because it helps make our team better. There's advantages to both. But for those who have come on as staff, I think those have been the factors and, and that's been a big part of why they feel like case study buddy is a place that they want to be in a more full-time way. Absolutely. You kind of spoke to this a little bit when you were talking about all hands meetings, but what are some of the ways that you've really intentionally like build a very collaborative team culture? Yeah, it's tough because we've been remote from day one as well. Right. So it's not like when you're in an office and you can just see each other every day and, you know, chatter on the water cooler and go to events and, <laughs> And whatever, um, you know, building a close knit culture in, in a totally remote environment is tough, even pre pandemic, you know, which we were. Um, but some of, you know, these all hands meetings, that's one small way. Um, on top of that, you know, our team leads, we get them to have meetings with their teams. So, you know, our lead writer will run calls with the writing team, just talk through again uh, questions, concerns, what's changing, what's happening, how are things going? Um, we have done you know, some team, team building stuff. We did an online escape room and uh, that was a a great chance to come together for our leadership team. We did fly everyone, you know, into Calgary and all meet together and and spend some time uh, in in a room and planning for the future and talking through things. And that was tremendously valuable. Um, You know, making a conscious effort to celebrate the wins in places, you know, we have a wins channel in Slack and we celebrate business wins there. We celebrate personal wins there. Um, you know, our team has taken it on themselves to start initiatives. Like we have an internal newsletter and different people from the team get featured in that we have, uh, 
like pet therapy, essentially, where for an hour, you know, once or twice a month, people go and there's a video of cute puppies and everybody works together while cute puppies are on the screen. That came out of, you know, an idea from the team. Um, so at some point, you know, we've we've given the team ownership over, hey, what do you want to do to make this a place you want to be? What ideas do you have? Some of our team started a book club. You know, they they read through different books that, uh, you know, they feel help make them better at their jobs or whatever it might be. So at some point, it's not just about what we do as leaders, but how we empower team members with ideas to, you know, run with things. And I think we're still learning. And, and this is an area that we're still trying to get a lot better at, to be honest. But um you know, part of it is, yeah, giving people agency and ownership over initiatives that they feel will make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think a lot of leaders, especially people who went remote for the first time during the pandemic, um, kind of forget that, like, the value of having those in-person retreats. Um, and I know you kind of spoke to flying out your leadership team and having everyone come to visit in like be all together and do, for planning and how valuable that can be. How much of that, like, how much time did you spend before your in-person leadership retreat actually doing pre-planning? And what are some of the things that you did there that you thought were particularly effective? Uh, I mean, it's always been, it's always been something in progress. Like Jen and I you know, meet regularly to talk about the direction of the business and key issues. We started, you know, we have other standing calls with team leaders or, you know, every week we have a weekly leadership meeting. Every department kind of talks about what's happening and what they're seeing and where they're at. Um, so it's, you know, it's been a vested effort prior. I think that really the rubber really hit the road, you know, again, as we started making transitions to staff, um, it just became easier to have those kinds of conversations. Um, I think in the early days too, just by virtue of being small, there, there was a lot more, bumping up, you know, against each other in different places on chat or what have you, you know, we've always had some staff in the same city. Uh, we've, we've always had, you know, zoom meetings or opportunities to come together, you know, in that way. So I, I think, you know, especially with the past year and a half, two years, it's become an extra focused effort, but prior to that, you know, there are still things we were doing to try to connect people and, and make people feel like part of a team. Absolutely. And just totally shifting gears. Um, but do you, would you say that you're an introvert, an extrovert or an ambivert? You know what? I don't know anymore. I feel like it's changed, uh, as I've gotten older, but also just as like the world has changed. I love, for example, I love being on stage, whether that was, you know, when I was in a band playing music for people or whether it's giving a talk, I love conference atmospheres and meeting people and getting to know people. And, you know, I'm, I'm not out of my element there, but then at the same time, you know, I absolutely need time to myself to recharge. If we're looking at, you know, introvert, extrovert as like what fires you up, like the extroverted side definitely drains me more. I, I enjoy it. I like it. I'm not afraid of it, but I definitely, you know, recharge my batteries more from time to myself. So maybe it's ambivert, but I honestly, I honestly don't know at this point. It's, it's all kind of topsy-turvy. I love asking this question. And do you think there's certain personality traits, whether it is like, introvertedness or extrovertedness or other traits in particular that make someone better as a leader? Oh, that's, it's so hard because I think the qualities of leadership, they, they go beyond that, right? Like I, I, it's hard to say like, yes, being extroverted and personable and able to, you know, have that kind of charisma um, and interest in people serves you so well. 
But then when I look at even leaders on our team, some of our best people uh, and best leaders are, I, I would say, pretty deeply introverted. Uh, they are cautious, methodical. They think through things. They they don't go out of their way to interact with people for no reason. But when they do, it's very intentional and focused and productive. So I think that's so hard because no, I, I think my answer is that I don't know that it matters. I think I think both what matters more is their ability to consider a situation, consider a person, lead on a process and articulate, you know, what needs to be done why and and where things are headed. Uh, and I don't know that it matters so much if they're introverted or extroverted, as long as in their own way, they're able to tackle that. Absolutely. That's a great answer. And a follow on to that is when you're looking to hire people on your team, what are some of the things that you look for to see kind of leadership potential or management potential? Hiring is so hard. <laughs> um it's the cliche, but it really, it really is very, very difficult. You know, we've, we've had great wins on that front. We've had misfires on that front. Um, and so it's, it continues to be a learning experience for me. And I think for gen two and, and for a company as a whole, I think, you know, we're starting to learn more and more what to look for. I think accountability to themselves and to a team is, is crucial you, you know, proficiency in an area does not mean that person's going to be an amazing leader. You can be an absolutely, and this is not, you know, I'm, I'm picking examples out of a hat, but you can be an amazing writer and absolutely terrible leader for writers. A big part of it, it comes down into accountability and willingness to not only own your piece, but, you know, I, I, I say like your job as a leader is not to be confident. It's to make everyone else around you confident. It's not for you to be confident that something will get done. It's to make everyone else confident that something will get done. It's not for you to be confident in the process. It's to make everyone else confident in the process. And so, you know, I think we've been deceived in the past by some like deep personal experience in an area. And yeah, sometimes that's prerequisite for a great leader, but you know, you don't want to hire lone wolves who are great at their thing, but who can't articulate that or build other people up or make them confident in that. So you know, we we increasingly look for how much do they ask about the team that they'd be working with? How interested are they in the work of the other departments and how what they do will influence those people? Two, we, we really look for a high personal standard of, of quality. Do they give a shit? Do, do they care about the outcome of their work? Uh, are they obsessed with how do I make this better? How do I make this more efficient? How do I make this easier to communicate? Um, you know, having a, a high standard personally for the way they present themselves and the work that they do makes a big difference. Um, you know, minding those details, caring, you know, to the point of obsession about how things happen and, and more importantly, why they are the way they are. A good leader, you know, is willing to objectively challenge the status quo. And if, something we're doing doesn't serve us, or if there's not a good reason for it, um, being willing to call it out and say, why are we doing this? Would it be better if, you know, not leaping to, I've got a brand new idea, but starting from a point of curiosity, I think that's more what I'm trying to drive in here is like this curiosity tied to a high personal standard, caring enough to understand why something's done the way it's done before leaping to, well, I've got recommendations and here's how I change it and so on and so forth. But 
okay, why is it the way it is? All right, now that I understand that, now I, I can look to innovate on that or I can look to improve it. Um, but yeah, accountability, curiosity, and you know, I think kindness, which is a cliche, but you know, for our culture, for our organization, you can have conversations that are hard. You can deliver feedback that's tough to swallow. You can deal with tough client situations. You need to be able to do those things. We need to be able to do them through a lens of kindness, which doesn't mean being a pushover. doesn't mean just laying down and being a doormat. But that empathy, that kindness, that ability to step outside themselves and consider the context of a situation and how would I want to be dealt with in this situation? You know, I, I think that's massive too. Um, so I, I think kind of those three increasingly are things that we look for is that accountability, that curiosity, that kindness. And then, yeah, are they proficient at their job? And, and those sorts of things are, are table stakes. But if they excel in those areas, I think they're they're more likely to be a fit for us at least. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, a, I think you something that you really hinted at is like, there's a level of humbleness that needs to be there. Um, if you really want to be a, if for like really strong leaders. Um, and I guess a follow on question, I don't necessarily know if this is something you've encountered um, personally at case study buddy, but there are obviously certain roles where the people who are in those roles tend to also be extremely proficient and extremely good at interviewing. Um, and maybe some points to the point where it almost could be a little bit of like a 180 when they're in that role because they interview a lot better than they actually perform the role itself. Um, have you ever encountered that with any roles? And if so, what were some of the things that you kind of learned from that? Uh, I mean, I think it's it's hard to answer this because I, I mean I don't want to make it sound like people on our team now have have you know deceived us in that way and it's like oh you know that's I don't know that that's the case. Um, I think the danger of interviews is people can, as you're saying, say all the right things, but we look at track record and we look at how they problem solve and we look at the actual outcomes of the work that they've done and the teams that they've worked with. I wasn't a big believer in references until I saw the way, you know, my partner Jen conducts reference checks and the way she asks questions and the things that she digs into. Um, talking to references is huge and an absence of references is a glaring red flag. Uh, the absence of someone we can talk to on that team to ask, how did they collaborate? How did they lead? Um, you know, when we're interviewing, we will look for examples, we will get them to explain projects, we'll get them to share their mentality, we'll get them to talk through their philosophy on things. Um, you know, but no matter what, you're going to have people who are slick and who can say all the right things. So you want to check references and clients, you want to check past projects, you want to get an impression of, of how others who directly work with them, the, you know, the impressions that they've left. And then there's probationary periods for a reason. Um, you know, again, I used to think that was heavy handed when I was on the other side of it as an employee, but now running a company, I completely understand why there's a three month window where you can test someone out. Um, you know, you can see what they're like to work with. You can see how they bring themselves to the job. You can see how they interact with your team. Um, you know, I said it before, I'll say it again, like hiring is hard. And to some degree, until you have worked with someone, you won't fully know the fit for your company, the fit for your team, and, and whether or not what they've told you is true. Um, you can go off of vibes, you can go off of 
portfolios, but you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's always a risk and firing is like by far the worst, the worst part of being a leader, the worst part of running a business, letting people go sucks. I take no joy in it. I've never taken joy in it. I've never understood people who do. There's people who love firing. I've never understood that. Um, it, it has been the, my least favorite part of the job. It's a re- reality of running business. It's not a black mark on you as a leader, or you as a company, but the reality is working with people is difficult, challenging, messy, and the best thing you can possibly do. And sometimes you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to make a wrong move and you're going to have to respond to it. So yeah, it's, there's, there's always going to be that risk, but I think we've found some ways to try to sniff it out and, and at least to provide a period where we can validate, is this person the real deal? Are they really, you know, as good as they said? Going back to what you were talking about with reference checks, I kind of had the same, a very similar view. And I think a lot of others do that oftentimes reference checks aren't particularly as valuable as they could be. Since if someone's giving a reference, if someone is, a candidate is telling you the references, you know, the references they are not going to, at least most smart candidates are not going to put a reference out there that isn't, you know, someone that isn't going to give them like, you know, great feedback. What are some of the ways that you can kind of do those reference checks and actually figure out, you know, the real story behind it so that you're not just getting the, you know, generic, oh, this person was amazing to work with. Yeah. I mean, it's two-sided. I think number one, um, yeah, there's always going to be references who are going to lie or say the best possible thing. We really like client references um, where an actual project was conducted um, you know, we, we really like references where they worked as part of a team or the person reported to them directly. Uh, so the kinds of references really matter, right? Like if, if it was just a peer, they worked alongside and not someone they actually reported to or did project work for, I think we, we might weigh that a little less, but, um, there are lots of things that I think, you know, Jen has done and I've observed and I'm learning to do that can make a difference. I think part of it is establishing empathy, you know, right at the hop of a reference check. Like, why are we considering this person? Um, you know, why are we looking at them particularly? I think depending on who you're talking to as well, right? Like business owners understand the risk other business owners face. And so are they sad to lose that person? Are they wishing that person would stay? We, we try to get nitty gritty and specific. What kinds of projects did they work on? What worked really well during those projects? What, you know, could have gone better in those projects? Um, if we're talking to clients, if we're talking to people that they reported directly to those kinds of questions, you know, you'll find um, that I think a lot of people are, are pretty honest about the strengths and the weaknesses. I mean, our number one is like, how sad is the person that this person's moving on? you know, from, from their current job, how, how bummed out are they? And that's pretty hard to fake. Um, you know, in the case of some, you know, like one of our project manager hires, they are devastated, you know, obviously they're going to give her a glowing review, but we could just tell like, yeah, they really see this as a big loss. And, and that's, you know, that's good for us. So talking about the nitty gritty, getting a sense of like, how sad are they to see this person go, Getting into the specifics, laying out your case from an empathetic perspective. These are the things we're hoping they'll be good at. How how much do you think they'll be a fit? What specifically about them do you think will make them a fit? It makes it harder to fake. It's easy to get on a call and say, oh, they're such a great person and so on and so on. But when you're asking about specific qualifications or what would make them qualified, yeah, there's going to be world-class BS, you know, BSers out there. But 
Um, you know, so, some of those things are just harder to make up on a call. And you look for trends across the different references you call, right? You, you look for people saying similar things. You look for people highlighting specific things. Yeah, those are some of the things that we look for and, and that have made a difference. Yeah, that's really, really thorough. Um, I could talk talk, talk about like reference tracks and stuff like that for ages, but I also want to be respectful of your time. And before we wrap, I have a couple of lightning round questions that I was hoping I could ask you. Sure. Um, if you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose and why? Any historical figure? Um, that's a really good question. I would probably like to have coffee with, I think it would be cool to talk to someone like Nikola Tesla, who was misunderstood in their time and so passionate and so eccentric and brought so much energy, but it's still like an enigma. People don't fully understand them. I'd like to know like what motivated him and how he thought through problems and what his approach to coming at you know, different issues were. Plus, I think he was just like a nutty guy and would be interesting conversation. Yeah, totally. Um, and what's one book you'd recommend that all agency founders or CEOs should read? Um, it's cliche at this point, but Made to Stick, I think, is a really comprehensive look at making messaging sticky and the thinking that goes into it. And even if you're not in writing, even if you're not in marketing, having a good grasp on how to get your point to land and how to get people on board with a message will make you a better leader, make you a better communicator. Um, so that would be the one I'd point to. 100%. Um, it's been really great chatting with you on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Joel. Where can listeners find you online? I am probably most active on Twitter. So at Joel Kletke and LinkedIn. Um, publishing, you know, for Case Study Buddy, we publish stuff all the time to the blog. So if customer success stories are a challenge for you or you're just looking for some insights there, that would be a place to take a peek. Um, but yeah, for me personally, probably Twitter and LinkedIn are the places that I'm most active. Facebook is a, a total wasteland. So if you add me there, odds are very, very good. Nothing's going to come of it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.